Chapter Two of Seeing Things at Night. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Things at Night by Haywood Bruin. How to Be a Lion Tamer. The Ways of the Circus is a decidedly readable book, rich in anecdotes of the life of circus folk and circus animals. The narrator is an old lion tamer, and Harvey W. Root, who has done the actual writing, has managed to keep a decidedly naive quality in the talk as he sets it down. There is a delightful chapter, for instance, in which Conklin tells how he first became a lion tamer. By gradual process of promotion, he had gone as far as an elephant, but a salary was still much lower than that of Charlie Fourpaw, the Lion Man. There were three lions with the circus, but Charlie never worked with more than one in the cage at a time. Conklin got the notion that an act with all the lions in action at once would be a sensational success. He was not sure that it could be done, as he had had no experience with lions. The only way to find out was to try. Accordingly, Conklin sneaked into the menagerie alone, late at night, to ascertain whether or not lions lay along his natural bent. "'The animals seem somewhat surprised at being disturbed in the middle of the night,' he says, and began to pace rapidly up and down their cages. I paid no attention to this, but opened the door of each cage in succession and drove them out. Then I began, as sternly as I could, to order them around and give them their cues. Except, perhaps, for an unusual amount of snarling, they did as well for me as for Charlie. I put them through their regular work, which took fifteen or twenty minutes, drove them back, and fastened them into their own cages, and climbed down onto the floor from the performing cage, much elated with my success. I had proved to myself that I could handle lions." Conklin then goes on to tell how he gave a secret exhibition for the proprietor of the circus and convinced him of his skill. In fact, the proprietor promised that he should become the lion tamer of the show as soon as Charlie Fourpaw's contract ran out. Conklin goes on to say that he himself was very particular for the sake of safety not to let Charlie know of this arrangement. And in explaining his timidity, he writes... He was a big fellow with a quick temper. This almost emboldens us to believe the old story of the lion tamer and his shrewish wife. Coming home late from a party, he feared to enter the house, so he went to the back yard and crept into the cage with the lions. There it was that his wife discovered him the next morning, sleeping with the lions. She shook her fist and shouted through the bars, "'You coward!' To be sure, as Mr. Conklin tells it, there seems to be no great trick in being a lion tamer. Take, for instance, the familiar stunt in which a trainer puts his head into a lion's mouth and you will find, upon close survey, that it is nothing to worry about. This never failed to make the crowd hold its breath, but it was not as risky as it seemed, says Conklin, for with my hold on the lion's nose and jowl, I could detect the slightest movement of his muscles and govern my actions accordingly. Mr. Conklin does not develop the point, 
but we suppose that if he detected any intention on the lion's part of closing his mouth, he would take his head out in order to make it easier for the animal. Mr. Conklin also corrects a number of misapprehensions about lions which may be of use to some readers. Contrary to popular belief, you have nothing to worry about if any of your lions insist on walking up and down. A lion that will walk around when you get in the cage with him is all right, as a general thing, explains Conklin, but look out for the one that goes and lies down in a corner. To be sure, there is something just a little disturbing in the afterthought indicated in as a general thing. Our luck is so bad that we wouldn't feel safe in a cage with a lion even if he ran up and down. In fact, we would be almost willing to wager that ours would be one of the unfortunate exceptions which didn't know the rule and so would do his bit toward providing it. In another respect, the lion tamer is a little more specific about lions and therefore more helpful. It is true, though, he adds, that you should never let one get behind you if you can help it, though in many of the acts it is not possible to keep all of them in front of you all the time. We can understand this advice, though it is not altogether clear to us just what we would do if a lion tried to get behind us. Of course, we would tell him not to, but after that we should be somewhat at a loss. We have never believed in being rough with lions. Probably we would let him have his way just to avoid argument. As a matter of fact, we would have no great objection to having all our lions behind us if only we could keep far enough in front. A lion that growls frightfully and acts very ferocious when you are outside the cage may be one of the easiest to handle and get work out of when once you are actually in the cage. And on the other hand, a lion that is mean and dangerous to do anything with in the cage may be exceptionally docile from the outside and allow you to pet him freely. This should go a long way toward solving the problem of lion tamers. All you have to do before a performance is to make a test from outside the cage. Try to pat your lion and pull his ears. If he growls and bites your hand, you will know at once that you may come in and go about your business with perfect safety. On the other hand, if he meets your caresses by rolling over on his back and purring, it is up to you to call off the show or send for your understudy. The unfortunate fate of such a substitute is described by Conklin with much detail and, we fear, a little relish. The man in question took Conklin's job when he struck for a raise in salary. Things went well enough during the first performance until the very end, and then it was the fault not of the lion, but of the substitute, for the trainer was ignorant of one of the cues which had become part of the act. I had taught George to jump for me as I went out the door, writes Conklin. It had been done by blowing on his nose and then jumping back, as you would play with a dog. It always made a great hit with a crowd, who supposed it had seen a lion try to eat a man, and that I had had a very narrow escape. I worked it this way. After I had finished the rest of my act, I would get George all stirred up and growling. Then I would fire my pistol two or three times and jump out of the cage as quickly as I could. At the same time, George would give a big lunge and come up against the door 
which I had just shut behind me. George had learned the trick so well that I frequently had to turn on him once or twice and work him farther back from the door before I dared attempt getting out. Unfortunately, the substitute had missed all this part of the act. He started out of the cage, and George jumped at him, and the man was not prepared to dodge. The moral seems to be that nobody should covet another man's job, not even that of lion-taming. Some readers, we suppose, will find Mr. Conklin's lying stories unwelcome because they may tend to take away their illusions. It is not to be denied that he has to some extent rubbed the guilt off the gingerbread by writing that the record for all the lions he has known consists of one substitute trainer and a cow. His whole attitude towards lions is contemptuous in its calm, and so is the attitude of practically everybody else in the book, with the exception of the cow and the substitute trainer. Even they suffered a little, at first, from overconfidence. One night down in Philadelphia, when Wallace, the big lion, escaped from his cage in winter quarters, nobody grew excited. O'Brien, the owner of the show, did not even get up, but called through the door, Go get Conklin. The preparations of the trainer were simple. First he got an iron bar, and then he found the lion and hit him on the end of the nose. After a few minutes, he adds, I had him safely locked in again. Lions, for all their air of authority, seem to be easily dominated. They're not so much wicked as weak. Anybody with a little firmness can twist them around a finger, possibly not the little finger, but any of the others. It is a great pity that lions should be like that. To be sure, the information ought not to come as a surprise to anybody who is familiar with the Bible. The condition we have mentioned has existed for a long time. As far as we know, Daniel had not so much as an iron bar when he went into the den. He overawed the lions with nothing more than faith. Perhaps it is not quite fair to go on as if lions were the only living creatures in all the world who are swayed and cowed by firmness and authority. The same weakness may be found now and then among men. All too many of us, if hit on the nose with iron bars, either real ones or symbols, do little more than lions in similar circumstances. We may growl and roar a little, but we do not show resentment in any efficient way. And like the lions, we are singularly stupid in not making working alliances with our fellows against the man with the iron bar. By and by, we begin to go through the hoops as if the procedure were inevitable. Having made a protest, we feel that our duty is done. It is a great pity. Lions ought to know better. The man who stares you in the eye and squeezes hard in a handshake may come to the bad end which you wish him, but it is unlikely that he will ever be eaten by lions. Something else must be devised for him. Even outside the circus, he is likely to go far. Anybody who can shake a little personality can be ringmaster in this world, and we, all of us who have none, do nothing about it except to obey him. Camels we can swallow easily enough, but we strain at the natty dresser. Still, we did manage to find a few bits of information in the ways of the circus, 
which were brand new to us. If, for instance, a rhinoceros escaped from his cage, just what would you do to get him back again? That is, if he were the sort of rhinoceros you wanted back. At first glance, it seems rather a problem, but any reader of Mr. Conklin's book could arrange it for you without difficulty. Nothing is needed but carrots and a stout heart. The carrots you scatter profusely about the floor of the cage, and when the rhinoceros returns to get them, you slam down the door, and there he is. End of chapter 2 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas